taking my time on my ride. These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as the playlist. In preparation for today's show, I asked you, my listeners, to share with me what you learned growing up from your family, friends, and mass media about sex. One listener said she was six when she asked her parents how Quinn got pregnant on Glee. Another listener responded that her mother told her not to hold hands or kiss because it leads to more, and her father told her if she ever came home pregnant, he'd kill her. Another listener responded that her friends treated sex as a goal you achieved when you got older, and another said women were defined by their virginity, and once you give it away, you can't get it back. As I read your comments and listened to your stories, and then awoke to the Twitter controversy over the release of WAP from Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, it was abundantly clear. The messages we were taught about sex are harmful, hurtful, and in many cases, flat-out wrong. In today's episode, I am going to discuss my own sexual awakening and how what I was taught affected me. Because WAP dropped this week as I was preparing my show, rather than include two Top 40 songs from my childhood, this episode will include one childhood Top 40 song, Madonna's Justify My Love, and Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's new release, WAP, to examine how we viewed women who took ownership of their sexuality in the early 90s and how we treat them 30 years later. Spoiler alert, we haven't evolved nearly as much as we might think. So, let's begin. But before I do, please note that this episode includes references to sex, weight, sexual assault, and other potentially triggering topics. Please take care of yourself. And if this episode is not the right one for you, I completely understand, and I welcome you back next week. I can't have a sex episode without including Madonna. Her self-titled cassette was the very first piece of music I ever purchased, and she was the first diva I ever emulated. Like so many girls in 1984, I dressed up as her for Halloween in denim and bright scrunchies, dyed green spiky teased hair and ripped black tights, her bright neon punk rock look signifying defiance and freedom. While Madonna has always pushed boundaries, in the 1980s she sang about losing one's virginity and teen pregnancy, she was still restricted by her producers, so her less controversial hits, such as Borderline, Crazy For You, and Into The Groove, dominated the airwaves. It wasn't until 1990, with Justify My Love, one of the most controversial songs on my entire playlist, that Madonna shattered the idea that women were the objects of male fantasy and viewed through the male gaze, as depicted in most of the hits of the time, like Beau Biv DeVoe's Do Me and Billy Idol's Cradle of Love, rather than the creators and directors of their own sexual desires. I was so blown away by the lyrics and Madonna's performance that I'd secretly listened to it after school, in my bed, headphones on, wishing I could be so bold. Justify My Love was Madonna's ninth number one single, written by Lenny Kravitz for her Immaculate Collection album. The song was banned from MTV and later named the number one sex song ever by Pop Sugar. Madonna argued, 
It's the interior of a human being's mind. These fantasies and thoughts exist in every person. Why is it that people are willing to go to a movie and watch someone get blown to bits for no reason, and nobody wants to see two girls kissing or two men snuggling? I think the video is romantic and loving and has humor in it. While I applauded the video for celebrating sexual fantasy and sexual expression outside of the usual early 90s cis and heteronormativity, I really love the song's unapologetic lyrics. The first time I had ever heard of sex was when my mother sat on my bed when I was seven years old, book in hand, the name of which I cannot remember, and explained to me that women have eggs, men have sperm, and when you're married, a man uses his penis to inject sperm into the woman's vagina. It meets up with her egg, and pregnancy and a baby happen. I was raised in a socially conservative Catholic family, and to be fair, I was only in second grade. So, there was no discussion of sex from an emotional or love standpoint, just how it worked. And there was of course no mention of any sex act, except that by a man and a woman who are married to each other. In retrospect, after a decade of teaching college students and raising three children to adulthood, I realized that my mom gave me more of a talk, incomplete as it was, than some kids received at all, leaving children to turn to their friends in the internet. The upside of this is that unlike in my generation, lots of great educational information is available online. The downside, of course, is that children are not well-versed in media literacy and therefore unable to filter good versus harmful information. And they absorb everything. So, after having the talk with my mom, I learned almost nothing more about sex for years. I went to Catholic school with other kids with like-minded parents. The nuns certainly never discussed it. The only moral lessons I remember learning from them in elementary school were that idle hands were the devil's workshop, to sit like a lady, and to not speak unless spoken to. And if boys acted out, well, boys will be boys. Imagine my surprise when I woke up one morning in the fifth grade, heart-pounding, lightheaded, with an unfamiliar squishiness in my stomach, having dreamt about a boy I had known since first grade, but had probably exchanged fewer than 20 words. Imagine my abject terror when I had a similar dream about this boy the next night and the night after that, and off and on for three and a half years before I was halfway through the eighth grade and my class went on a field trip to a park with a swimming pool. When my crush took off his shirt and jumped in the pool in his orange swimming trunks, it was the first time I had physically reacted to a chest, to a stomach, to a body. He was a heavy set guy, as has nearly every man I've been physically or sexually attracted to since. In the roundness of his stomach, along with his spiky blonde hair, broad chest, and strong, thick calves made my brain do backflips. I had had sexual feelings before. The first time I masturbated was quite by accident, climbing a pole in my basement, and then somewhat accidentally, but then very much on purpose, when I discovered the water jets in my neighbor's pool. But I had never associated these physical feelings with a person. Now by this point, more than half of the girls in our class had gone with other boys, many starting in the fifth grade, when I had first had my crush. In sixth and seventh grade, the girls would French kiss their boyfriends after school, and I was always jealous 
but still never told my crush I liked him. He was smart, not a jock or a nerd, but an Iron Maiden-obsessed metalhead. He was funny, artistic, and the nuns hated him. One even called him a jackass in class, different times. My grandma asked me why I had to like the only Presbyterian boy in my Catholic school, because in her mind, falling for boys of a different religion is inappropriate. Never mind her comment itself, we were 13 years old, so not exactly headed to the altar. He was shy, maybe a late bloomer, because he had never asked out any of the girls in our class. I knew if I wanted to date him, I would have to let him know I was interested. I tried the subtle route at first. I managed to sit next to him on the bus on the way back from that field trip, and then I talked to him every chance I got at school. We became good friends. He enjoyed my sarcasm and dry wit, but he never flirted, and it never went further. As the months of eighth grade wound down, and we headed to different high schools the next year, I knew my opportunities to date him were slipping away, and I did not want to start high school never having had a boyfriend, having never held a boy's hand, or dancing, really dancing. I'd slow danced with boys before. However, culture teaches that men pursue. Only desperate girls tell a boy how they feel first. I was supposed to be pretty, dress properly, laugh at the right times, but not too hard, and say the right things, but without being too forward or obvious, of course. Don't dominate the conversation. Wear makeup, but not too much. Basically, wear makeup without looking like you're wearing any makeup. Accentuate your body with attractive clothing, but not too much. Don't reveal too much. Like most girls my age, the first man I wanted to impress was my father. When I was younger, we were very close. We'd take walks around the neighborhood. He taught me how to read, taught me geography. But when I asked him questions about life, about emotions, he always responded, You're too young for that. Ask me when you're 12. Me, being the precocious child that I was, kept a small notebook in my top drawer filled with the questions he wouldn't answer. In retrospect, this was a brilliant deflection on his part. When I was 12 and retrieved that paper, ready to find out the answer to my life's greatest mysteries, I realized I'd already knew the answers, or the questions had become irrelevant. I had new questions now, but nobody to ask. Although I was still desperate for my father's approval, he'd moved on. He spent most of his free time with my younger brother, who he took on drives and to baseball games. One day I cried, asking my mother why I couldn't accompany him. She told me it was because I was a girl. So, my conversations with my father became more infrequent. He enjoyed cooking, though, and my mother worked a lot, so when I did talk with my father, it was usually with him standing in the kitchen and me sitting in the dining room eating the food he'd prepared. And before I continue, a reminder of my earlier content warning and an acknowledgement that over 30 million people in the United States have an eating disorder. It was here, in the dining room, where he told me not to eat too much of the food he'd made. A girl my height, five foot two, should never weigh more than 110 pounds. I didn't want to be, his words, a thunder thighs, or a bertha butt, or, God forbid, a sister Mary elephant. 
It was there where he told me that 1,100 calories were more than enough for a girl to eat in a day, and that with my body type, I may balloon all the way to 140 pounds in adulthood. And if I did that, I'd be much less likely to find a man who would ever want me. And if I did, I shouldn't expect him to be faithful, not for long. It was there where I learned that because my brother is a boy, that it's natural for him to try to sleep with every attractive girl at school. And when he became a bit of a player in high school, my dad gave him quite a few pats on the back. But I was told if I slept with a boy before marriage, that I should never expect anyone respectable to marry me. It was there that I learned I shouldn't eat to sustain life, or even because food is delicious, but rather to carefully shape my body into one a man could love. It was there where my father denounced the laws coming into effect in the 1990s prohibiting marital rape. For my younger listeners, yes, it was perfectly legal to rape your spouse in the United States as late as the 1990s. He called these laws unnecessary and ridiculous, because of course a wife must always consent to her husband. Her body is his. And I was there at that table when the news broke that boxer Mike Tyson was accused of the rape of an 18-year-old when my father scoffed. What could she expect if she dressed like that and went to his hotel room? She knew who he was and what he wanted. So why did she go? Why didn't she say no? Essentially, it was always the man's job and responsibility to pursue and to obtain as much sex as possible. It was my job and the job of all women to be as attractive and pleasant and submissive as possible. But still, I was fully responsible for all the consequences of sex. If I was raped, it was my fault. And if I got pregnant, as both parents told me often, I shouldn't bother coming home. I would no longer be their daughter. I internalized every message. Without a man, I was nothing. And in a relationship, I had no agency, and whatever happened to me was my fault. This message was reinforced throughout my life in varying degrees. Every man I've had a serious relationship with has treated my body as theirs to manipulate. Some encouraged me to eat more and gain weight, preferring my body voluptuous. Others criticized my naturally curvy body as less than Hollywood ideal, but reassured me that they loved me, as if it was some great service or sacrifice on their part. Despite carrying fat in my hips, my butt, my thighs. Back to my first crush. I did end up asking that boy out in the eighth grade. He said yes. And we did go to the sports banquet and the end of the year dance, and I wore his black leather jacket to basketball games. And because I was now in a couple, popular kids invited me to their end of the year parties reinforcing my belief that attractiveness to boys was the key to inclusion. But Madonna's song Justify My Love gave me a much different message, one that I hadn't heard before. When I belted that song at the top of my lungs, I wasn't an object of men's desire, but a woman who had the right to have and to voice her desires. I had agency. I had every right to feel sexual attraction. I had every right to love my body and accept my body, and offer my body, not as a subject of critique, but one worthy of love, admiration, sexual desire. I had every right to tell a man 
I wanted to hold his hand in Rome and run naked through a rainstorm, and doing so made me neither a slut nor a whore. My freshman year of high school, I made out with lots of boys at parties, after play rehearsals and in the stairwells of malls. When I share that part of my life with people, I usually do so with the explanation that it was because I was insecure that I needed the attention of boys, the desire of boys, to feel worth something. And while there is some truth to that, in framing my story this way, I'm reinforcing the toxic messaging of my youth. Why do I have to offer explanations at all for enjoying making out? Has a guy ever said that he made out with lots of girls in high school because he was insecure? Maybe I made out with boys because I enjoyed expressing myself, physically and sexually. Maybe it just felt good. And I think about how women have internalized misogyny a lot, because in 2020, it still affects every facet of our lives. Schools say they can't enforce mask mandates to prevent the spread of coronavirus, but send girls home for wearing spaghetti straps, because her education is deemed less important than a boy's distraction. Donald Trump, who said he could grab women by the pussy, because when you're powerful, they let you do it, is president. And when Dr. Christine Blasey Ford had the courage to face the Senate and the country and share her story of how then-Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh raped her at a party while his friend held her down, she was called mixed up, a liar, and he was confirmed to one of the most powerful positions in the country. A position in which he gets to make decisions about other women's bodies. I thought about this when I heard the devastating news this week that artist and advocate Daisy Coleman died by suicide. Her story was told in the 2016 documentary Audrey and Daisy. She was sexually assaulted at a high school party and then left unconscious in the freezing cold with bruises all over her body on her front lawn. Her assault wasn't taken seriously by law enforcement and she was bullied by her classmates. I think about how we frame Audrey's death as dies by suicide, blaming her for her own death. It's misogyny that teaches boys they had a right to her body, trains law enforcement to minimize sexual assault, and teaches her classmates to blame her for making poor decisions, rather than teaching boys they are responsible for theirs. And this week, nearly 30 years after the release of Madonna's Justify My Love, I woke up to the Twitter outrage over the release of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's WAP song and video to find that the same contingent who voted for a man who has dozens of credible allegations of sexual assaults against him cannot handle two strong, gorgeous, talented black women advocating for their own sexual pleasure. Because even in 2020, women, especially black women, owning and voicing their sexual wants and desires angers people who do not express that same outrage when sexual images of women and sexual fantasies and fetishization of women come from the mouths of male singers and male politicians. Former congressional candidate Deanna Lorraine tweeted, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion just set the entire female gender back by 100 years with their disgusting and vile song. And U.S. House candidate James P. Bradley tweeted that WAP is what happens when children are raised without God and without a strong father figure. I wholeheartedly disagree with Lorraine, but I think Bradley makes an unintended point. Without the constriction of a paternalistic God, 
or toxic and controlling male role models, women can write their own stories, satisfy their sexual desires, and claim their inherent power. Not one man appears in the entire WAP video, and this is what really angers the WAP haters most of all. Badass black women created this video for themselves. They didn't need MTV's approval, and they don't need your approval either. And that's what makes this song and video so perfect. If you need help with an eating disorder, you may call or text the National Eating Disorders Helpline at 1-800-931-2237. If you would like to discuss a sexual assault with someone, you may contact the RAIN hotline at one 800 656-HOPE. And if you are experiencing depression or thoughts of taking your own life, you may contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. If you would like to discuss this show or have ideas for future shows, send me an email at lifeasaplaylist at gmail.com, and I'd love to welcome you to the Life as a Playlist community. So give the page a like on Facebook and follow me at Life as a Playlist on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything.